following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. All right, good morning. Good to see you all. Glad that you're back after Thanksgiving. I'm sure it's a busy season for you all. Um, We spent a lot of time driving the car and sitting in traffic on the way through Austin, so really excited to be back. Um, And it's really an exciting morning for us because we're starting a new sermon series. When you're a pastor, this is like Christmas because you get a new graphic behind you. You don't have to pronounce all these hard Hebrew names anymore. You've got a new passage that you're looking at. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 4. So I'll read for us from Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to to begin looking at this beautiful gospel of Luke that is so cherished by us, your people. Lord, may you speak to us. May you give us new confidence this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know about you guys, but I've had this increasing concern with the amount of AI going on in the world. This came to my attention, you know, just how much it was bothering me. When I heard that the new Indiana Jones movie, I'm a huge fan of Indiana Jones. I've probably watched those like more than any other movie. They, in the newest installment, they actually took old Harrison Ford, they put him in front of a camera, and they put little dots on his face, and then they recorded him with the camera, and then later were able to use AI to transpose young Harrison Ford's face onto old Harrison Ford's body, and it was just really weird to know, like, okay, that's Harrison Ford, but it's not, and even Harrison Ford said, well, that's really my face. He's like, I don't know how they did it, but that's really my face. I thought, well, is that really his face? Right? No, no, there's AI making that face, right? So I was kind of, you know, concerned about that, and then, you know, I used to be a teacher, and I've, I've talk to other teachers who are a little frustrated by AI now because students will bring in papers that were clearly just type in a few commands on the computer and it presents a whole paper for them. And teachers have a hard time even recognizing that they're, you know, the student didn't write this, but actually it was just written on AI. And I even read an article this past week that there's an AI Jesus. And you can send him questions and he'll answer. He'll tell you like who you should date. He'll give you some nice little moral quips. He even will tell you when he's coming back, right? So I'm not recommending or endorsing AI Jesus. Okay, that's not why we're here. But I think this, this prevalence of things like deep fake images and audio, things that really make it hard for us to know what is really true. If you watch the news, you say, is that really something or is this really made? It makes us question reality. And we're not the first ones to really wrestle with this question. You know, think, think about being back in the first century, in the Roman Empire, and you hear these Jewish men come into your city, and they tell you about some man back from where they're from who 
could actually perform miracles. And not only that, he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. He's the son of God and he's the savior of the world and you should believe in him because he can give you eternal life. You hear that story from some people coming into your town. How do you know that that's true? Why do you believe what they have to say? And you know, it's, it's interesting for us. We're separated not by distance like they were. We're separated by time and distance. It's been 2,000 years since the accounts of Jesus when he lived on the earth, when he walked the earth. Why do we believe that these things are true? Why are we sure of our faith? Well, that's what Luke wants to help us with in this introduction. He is going to set forth in these four verses some, some information, some helpful things for those of us who are wrestling with how do we know, with who wrestle with these doubts and struggles. So we're going to look, first of all, at the who of the passage. Not the band, just the who. Uh, we're going to look at the how of this passage, and then we're going to look at the why. So the who, the how, and the why. So we started with this, these first four verses, right? The rest of the gospel actually starts in verse 5, but this is just a prologue. It's kind of an introduction to this work, and this was really common for classical historians. They would use, uh, they would start their histories by providing kind of a, a why that they're writing. They would explain why they decided to take on this task of presenting this history, and they'd even kind of give a little shout out to the guy who's paying for it, to their patron or the benefactor. And you can see this in uh, the, Jew, the Jewish historian Josephus. He starts his history of, the, uh, of uh, the Jewish wars this way. You can see this in the Greek historian Herodotus. He starts his history of, of the Greeks this way. And you'll notice that it's just this one long sentence. Okay, so if you were in English class, your teacher would be very disappointed with you for writing a, a sentence like this. It's just a run-on sentence. But actually, in Greek, in the language that it was written in, this long, complex sentence is actually a sign that you're really skillful in writing. And it, it's actually recognized as the finest Greek in the entire New Testament. So right here, this is the best writing we have in the New Testament. It's highly stylized. It has a, a form and a structure that we're going to uh, look into a little bit today. Uh, but then it's going to begin the informal section narrating the life of Jesus. So why would Luke, why would this author of this gospel, why would he adopt this classical stylized form? Well, think about who he's writing to. He's writing to this guy named Theophilus. He calls him the most excellent Theophilus. This is a name of honor, of respect, because Theophilus is probably pretty well to do. He's probably pretty educated where he would appreciate a start like this and recognize, like, oh, this is a formal history I'm getting here. And he's probably pretty elite. And so Luke is saying the gospel is for you. The gospel is a high-quality work. It's serious history that you are engaging with. And this gospel isn't just meant for the church and those who already believe it. This is a gospel that's supposed to go to the world to persuade and convince people to follow Jesus. But what's interesting, and I, I slipped up earlier, I was trying to hold back, nowhere in the gospel is the name of the author given. If you notice, it's not given in our four verses here, it's actually not given in the gospel at all. All he says is in verse 3, he says, it's good to me. This is where the author kind of enters into the writing. He says, it was good to me, it seemed good to me to write to you. So who is this me? And now I know you're all like, yeah, we got it. It's up on the screen. You said it already because it's really hard to hold that back. But it's interesting, why do we really believe that? Why do we think that this gospel was written by some guy named Luke? 
We know who it was to, but we're not really told who it's by. It's not like the letters of Paul and Peter and James where they enter, you know, the greeting with their name, right? This is Peter. This is Paul writing to you. And what's interesting is actually all the Gospels are like this. None of the Gospels actually identify who the author is. None of them identify themselves in their Gospel. In fact, we write according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, but those don't appear in the original text at all. They were inserted later for people to keep track of which Gospel am I reading. Now, we don't have time to get into a defense of all the authorship of the Gospel. That would be a big task, but we do have time this morning to, to look at this Gospel and see why there's a good case for Luke being the author of this Gospel. Well, the first thing we need to talk about is that Luke is actually the first part of a two-part series. Look at me if you have a second with uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So again, we have Theophilus, and he references this first book. So clearly, Acts is the second, the follow-on book to the, the Gospel of Luke. And it's, it's interesting that when you combine Luke and Acts together... It actually accounts for the majority, or accounts for the largest section of the New Testament scriptures. Over one third of the New Testament is found in the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And we don't even know who wrote it. More than Paul, more than John, right? It doesn't even say who wrote it, right? We know. We're going to get to that. We're going to build a case for why we think Luke wrote it, but it's not clear. It's not like Paul or John who identify themselves. So let's look at the case for Luke as the author of Luke and Acts. And the reason we needed to recognize that there's this two part to it, because the, the case is actually begin, the case begins in the, God, or in the book of Acts. In Acts 16, there's the start of what are called the we passages, where the author actually joins the narrative. He inserts himself in, he kind of breaks that barrier, and now he's going along with Paul on his missionary journey. Paul receives this vision of a man from Macedonia that's asking Paul, begging Paul to come and help those who are in Macedonia. And so Paul leaves Asia Minor, and he goes into Europe, into Greece, to Macedonia. And this is what Acts 16.11 says. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and, following, and to the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. And from that point on, you'll see this over and over again in the book of Acts, this we. There's an I that's joining Paul and his other travelers. Now, if we want to identify who that person is, it's actually a bit of a process. You have to look at all the people that Paul identifies as his companions. He names a lot of them. But when you boil it down, only four of them are not mentioned by name in the books of, book of Acts. We have Demas, Epaphras, Titus, and Luke. So one of them has to be the author. It's most likely that one of them is the author. Well, why do we decide Luke? Well, first of all, Epaphras, we're told, from uh, from from the book of Colossians, he doesn't actually join Paul until Paul's third missionary journey. Epaphras was from Colossae. He was from there, and he joined Paul during Paul's third missionary journey. So obviously, Epaphras couldn't have been on Paul's second missionary journey if he just joined Paul in his third missionary journey. It makes sense, right? And the same thing happens with Titus. We're told in 2 Corinthians 2 that Titus wasn't with Paul when he went from Troas to Macedonia. Explicitly, Paul says that. So what about Demas? Well, Demas isn't, isn't the author of the books of uh, Luke and Acts because Demas actually, we're told, abandons the faith. He leaves Paul and, uh, and abandons the faith. So he's not a very good candidate either. So we're left 
with Luke as the author of Luke and Acts. That's why we attribute it. That's why the, the, the ancient church attributed it to Luke as well. So to summarize, now we've been here for a while and we already, this is what we got. Luke wrote Luke. Great. Got it. Why did we hire this guy? Um, so what do we know? What, so it's funny because it's true. Uh, what do we know about Luke? Well, we know that he was a companion of Paul on his second missionary journey, on his third missionary journey. We know that he accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. And while they were in Jerusalem, Luke and Paul met with James, the brother of Jesus. We're told that in the book of Acts. And then we're told that Paul was arrested and Luke was there with him in, in Israel for two years while, while Paul was under house arrest there. But then Paul appeals for a trial to Caesar. And so Luke goes with Paul to Rome. They're shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And then we discover that Luke is one of the few companions who are with Paul while he's imprisoned in Rome in his first imprisonment. And Luke's name is actually only mentioned three times in the New Testament. Two of the occurrences are when Paul writes letters from prison in his first imprisonment. The book of Colossians was written while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And Paul says this in Colossians 4.14. Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. So I'm guessing if you knew anything about Luke, you probably knew he was a doctor, and this is why, right? Paul identifies him as a physician here. And when we combine that with the fact that we've got this beautiful, wonderful Greek for us Greek nerds in this, these first four verses here, we recognize that Luke was very well educated. He's a doctor, and he's able to assume this high stylized writing, so he's very well educated. And also in the same passage in Colossians 4, we can infer that Luke was not just a, that Luke was not a Jew, but he was actually a Gentile. Because what Paul does is he lists all the people who are traveling with him who are Jewish, who are of the circumcision, he says. And then he lists another group of people, and one of those people is Luke. So we can assume that Luke was a Gentile. So stop and think about that for a moment. The largest section of the New Testament scriptures were written by a Gentile. A Gentile who actually never met Jesus, who was not himself an eyewitness. He wrote the largest portion of the New Testament scriptures. Isn't that fascinating? But Luke, being a Gentile, makes sense when you read back through the Gospel of Luke and when you read the book of Acts, because you'll see that Luke has a special attention that he pays to Gentiles. In Luke, we are told, and only in Luke, that Jesus goes to Nazareth and he reads and We'll see a little bit later from this passage, but in Luke 4, 25 and 27, he gets in trouble with the people of Nazareth because they're mad he's not performing miracles among them. And he says, well, didn't you read about Elijah and how he healed the widow of Zarephath? Zarephath is not in, in a Jewish region. It's a Gentile region. And he says, and did you not hear about Elisha who didn't heal people in Israel, but he actually healed the Syrian general Naaman who had leprosy? Luke inserts that because he wants us to know that even from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had an eye on the Gentiles, that salvation was to go to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And you see this also in the fact that who does Jesus praise above anyone else in the book of Luke for their faith? In Luke 7, he praises a Gentile Roman centurion who has greater faith than anyone else in all of Israel. And only Luke records the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan. There are all these pictures of the importance of Gentiles. This is going to play out in the book of Acts as well. 
So we saw the first mention of Luke and Colossians. The second mention is actually in the book of Philemon, which is also written while Paul was in prison in Rome. Philemon 1, 24, uh, this is towards the end. You know, Paul's writing to Philemon and Colossae. He's writing to him about this runaway slave, Onesimus. But then at the end, he's like, and by the way, all these people, particularly Luke, one of my fellow workers, greet you. So he identifies Luke as a fellow worker in the gospel. It's funny, I, I just picture like Paul kind of doing everything, but Paul says, no, these are my fellow workers. And Luke is one of those fellow workers taking the gospel, enduring the same things that Paul has endured to proclaim the gospel. But the third and final mention of Luke is really quite sad. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is in prison, but this time, he's in prison in Rome, but this is actually his second imprisonment in Rome. He's been arrested again because of, the, of Nero's persecution of the church. He's in prison, and he's awaiting his beheading. He knows he's going to die as a follower of Christ. And this is what he writes. Verse 11, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Everyone else has abandoned Paul. Demas, we, we already mentioned, he abandoned the faith and left Paul. And some of Paul's other companions have left. Maybe Paul sent them out to continue the work. He didn't want them to get bogged down in Rome. He was sending them out to minister to the churches. But Luke alone is with Paul. Luke was a faithful, was a faithful minister of the gospel. And he was a faithful friend to Paul. So now that we've kind of looked at the who... We've identified Luke as the author and learned a little bit about him. Now let's look at how he wrote this gospel and why he wrote this gospel. We're going to look at his method and his purpose, the how and the why. So first, again, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. First we see that Luke acknowledges that there are predecessors who have already written about what Jesus has done. He says, in fact, many have done this, which is kind of fascinating. You're like, wow, many people wrote these things down? Well, sure, one of them is most likely Mark. The Gospel of Mark was probably one of the resources here that, that Luke is referring to, that many people have written it, and Mark is one of them, the Gospel of Mark. So if you, this is kind of a, 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 maybe a little bit of a digression here, but the first, three, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic Gospels. The reason they're called synoptic is because they have kind of a similar perspective. They have the same perspective. So you'll see a lot of the same stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You've probably noticed that in your own study. In fact, you'll see them a lot of the times in pretty much the same order. And you'll even see them use similar wording and sometimes even the exact same wording. And I love this. They're, usually they're kind of like all over the place telling the story. And then when it gets to the words of Jesus, it's like... Whew, word for word the same. Because they cherish what Jesus said, and so they want to get those quotes exactly right. But these synoptic gospels, right, it's, it's, it's interesting the way, that, the way that these were used, but Luke shares 80% of the gospel of Mark. That's a ton. So if you read it in the gospel of Mark, 80% of that is going to be in the gospel of Luke. So it's likely that Luke was aware of Mark's gospel, and probably even had a copy of it with him when he wrote his gospel. And this would make sense because, we don't think about this, but Mark and Luke were both companions of Paul. In fact, Paul says when he's in prison, tell Mark to come here. 
So you can imagine, while Paul's in prison, you could imagine Mark and Luke collaborating, Luke taking this gospel and, and then adding to it. He says that these predecessors have compiled a narrative. They've brought together all these different sources, right? The, the testimony of the apostles, things that they've seen themselves. They bring all these stories together and they stitch them together into this coherent, accurate account. You know, they had to be selective. Even the apostle John tells us, he said, and I love this picture, he says, if everything that Jesus did was written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. So they had to be selective and say, these are the key stories that really help illustrate, and really help show who Jesus was, what he did. But also, he uses a very special term to talk about these words. He says, this is a narrative, or this is an account. And that seems like just a normal word to us. But in Greek, that's actually a technical term. You would only use this term to talk about historical, uh, historical works, something that was referencing history. And you can see this concern for history all throughout the Gospels, but you particularly see it in Luke. Think about, I had this memorized from when I was a kid, Luke 2, 1 through 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This, first, this uh, was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. That's included so we know the historical context in which Jesus was born. Or in Luke 3, 1 through 2, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. He's giving those things so we can say, oh, I know what he's talking about. This is when these things occurred. Luke is concerned with giving us historical accounts. He wants us to know that these are things that really happened in history in certain places, at certain times. And he said, when they, these predecessors took all these things, put them together, they did this about the things that were accomplished among them. He says in verse 1, the things that were accomplished among them. God had been providentially guiding all the, these events to achieve his purposes, to accomplish what he wanted. They were not random things that happened. They were not things that just happened. They were things that Jesus actually fulfilled, that were predicted. They were fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament promise, and now Jesus is here and he fulfills them. In Jesus, he's saying, the time of salvation has come. All that the Old Testament promised is now being fulfilled in Christ. God's plan is accomplished. And it's cool to look through when you have this eye, right? You put on these glasses and you start reading for fulfillment in the Gospel of Luke. It's all throughout all the Gospels, but Luke has a special attention. He wants to pay to this idea of fulfillment, that this is God's plan. Over the next few weeks, I'm sure Derek will look at these infancy narr narratives of John the Baptist and of Jesus, and we'll see all the ways that those particular births were prophesied from days past. But listen to what Jesus said of himself in Luke chapter 4. This is at the beginning of his ministry. He's in the synagogue in Nazareth, and this is what he says. He opens the book of Isaiah, and he reads... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll and he gave it to the attendant and sat down. I love this. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Think of the way the Gospel of Luke wraps up, right? In Luke 24, Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and what does he do? He says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his, his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's like Jesus gave him a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible, right? Jesus, his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection is the fulfillment of God's plan for salvation to the world. So now Luke is going to tell us about these sources that he, that he used. Look at verse 2 again. He says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. They were delivered to them by eyewitnesses. Now, again, we have a technical term, this idea of delivering. It's handing down official historical information. It's, it's handing down authoritative teaching. So when these eyewitnesses and ministers of the word handed that over, that's a really important thing. They want to have continuity with what was passed down to them. They want to take what was given to them and pass it on. It's like kind of like the UPS guy. You'd be mad if you ordered something on Amazon and then the UPS guy dropped something else off. No, his job is to deliver what you ordered. And that's what their job was. They delivered over what they had received from Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the events of his life, his death, and resurrection. And they were eyewitnesses. This is a key to understand why Luke is writing this. He has these eyewitnesses who are ministers of the word. They're the same people, right? They saw something. They were there from the beginning with Jesus, and they were given the message by Jesus. Of course, this is a reference to the apostles, right? These are the people that God designated to be his eyewitnesses. John, in the, uh, in the letter of 1 John, he writes this. I love this way that he puts it. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched, this we proclaim to you. That's what Luke is saying. He said he has this eyewitness testimony of what they've heard, what they've seen with their eyes, what they've looked at. I love that. It's not just seeing with your eyes, but they've really gazed on it and what they've touched with their hands. And that's what he's telling them about. This is eyewitness testimony, and it's important because eyewitness testimony speaks to the truth of what happened. You know, in the courtroom, you had to have the testimony of two or more eyewitnesses for something to be valid. It allowed for checking and cross-checking of the information to make sure that it really happened that way. And the Gospels are just filled. When you look at it, again, put on these glasses of eyewitness testimony. When you look at the Gospels through the lens of where is this eyewitness testimony, it's just filled with it. A few nights ago, uh, we had the Brionises over at our house and the Watsons over at our house. And we're sitting around talking about dinner and they're talking after dinner and uh, we learned, you know, you guys might know this, but Bernie is actually a, a good musician. He loves playing guitar, and he's a drummer. And he just mentioned, you know, yeah, you know, sometimes I was invited to play with some bands. And I kind of like, in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, like who? And he was like, well, you know, like Leonard Skinner. And I said, if you didn't know that about this, it's really cool. I was like, wow, that's, that's a band I've heard of. And I'm not like a huge music guy. So if I've heard of the band, they're probably pretty famous. 
And so he goes on to talk about how in 1999, like right before Y2K and the turn of the, the, turn of the clocks and stuff, they needed a drummer to play with them in Lafayette, in Austin, and in Houston. And so they called him up, and he came and played drums for them. And he said he had to get ready to look the part. He already had the long hair going, but he had to get like a flannel shirt buttoned down. And he went and got some bell bottoms from the thrift store. And the bell bottoms had rainbow stripes on, on the patches on the back, right? So you can, you can picture what's going on. And he played drums for them for these three sets. And, you know, it, it, was, it was pretty cool hearing his story about that. And Mary afterwards, she, my wife, she kind of tongue-in-cheek says, well, how do we know you're not just making this up to impress us? And I looked at her, it was fun, because I knew I was preaching this passage. And I was like, well, Mary, we know that that's true because think of the details that he added that he didn't have to. You can't make up stuff about bell bottoms with rainbow stripes on the patches. That, that's not something you would just share unless it was really true. And so sure enough, you know, I uh, did a little investigation. I played Luke a little bit. He didn't have Google, but I do. And I typed in Google. And guess what? I got the concert list or the concerts for Leonard Skinner, 1999, Lafayette, December 29th, Austin, December 30th, Houston, December 31st. His story was true because there was, there was eyewitness things in his testimony that just showed, yeah, of course, this really did happen. When we look at the Gospels, we see these elements all throughout them. We're given details that aren't necessary for the story and in fact are sometimes embarrassing or things you wouldn't include if you were making something up. So for example, in the, in the story of Jesus meeting his two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we're told that one of the disciples is Cleopas. If you were making up a story, why would you name one of them and not the other? Well, it's because Cleopas was really there and that was somebody they might even know. It was an eyewitness that they could go follow up with and so he included that. Or think about the embarrassing details of Peter and the other disciples, right? They constantly were not understanding what Jesus was saying. They were always, uh, he was always, you know, commenting about their lack of faith. And they even denied Jesus and abandoned him in his time of need. We're told that the women were the first eyewitnesses of Jesus. They were second-class citizens. Their testimony wouldn't be allowed in court. But yet that is who actually saw Jesus first raised from the dead. And so that's why it's recorded for us. And some of these fun little details, in Mark 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he has them sit down as they're going to pass out the food. And Mark notes that there was a lot of green grass there. Why would you add that detail unless that's Peter who Mark uses his testimony as the basis for his gospel? If that's not something that Peter actually said, because that's what was in Peter's mind. He could smell and see that green grass when Jesus was feeding the 5,000. Or I love, uh, love thinking about John when he talked about the things that you've seen and looked at and touched. Think about the end of John's gospel when there's this miraculous catch of fish when Jesus appears to them after the resurrection. And he doesn't just say, and we got a lot of fish that day. He says, we caught 153 fish. But not just 153 fish, 153 large fish. Those are fish that he touched, even smelled. And so that's why that testimony is in the Gospels for us. They had experienced Jesus. They knew the Gospel message, and they wanted to relay exactly, sometimes in really strange little details like that, the things that they had seen and heard and looked at and touched. Because they were eyewitnesses, Jesus designated them to be ministers of the Word, he says. They are servants of this message. They were now bound by duty to take this message. He says, you will be my witnesses. That was their job going forward, to be ministers of the word. 
to deliver this message, to preserve it, to proclaim it, and then pass it on to the church. And so there's this beautiful way that Luke shows us that there's this unbroken eyewitness testimony here. We first have the events that Jesus did, right? The things that Jesus said and did. But then we have these eyewitnesses who saw them, and then they pass them on to those who write them down. And Luke is saying, I've taken some of those testimonies, those things that were written down, and I've looked at them. So look at verse 3. It helps us understand why Luke would bother. Why does Luke bother? If there's all these already written testimonies, we already have the Gospel of Mark. Why does Luke bother? Well, look at verse 3. He said, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He gives us a number of different reasons why he takes us on. It's not that he doesn't think Mark did a good job or the other people like Matthew didn't do a good job, but he has some content that he and he alone has that he wants to make sure the church knows about, that he wants to include in an account of Jesus. Because he says he's followed not just some things or he's looked at into a couple things. You know, he says he's followed all things for some time past. So through his travels with Paul and his time in Jerusalem and with Jesus' brother, James, he's had access to accounts and testimony that others like Mark and Matthew maybe didn't have. Or maybe they chose not to use. But Luke says, wow, this really helps the message of the gospel going to the Gentiles. So I want to make sure I include this story. In fact, 40% of the gospel of Luke is unique to Luke. That's incredible. Think about what we wouldn't have if Luke didn't pass this on to us. You know, we talked about how Luke was in Israel with Paul while Paul was under house arrest, waiting for his trial, and then he eventually appeals to Rome, right? Luke was with Paul during that time. What do you think he was doing for those two years that he's hanging out in Israel? He's able to go to the places where these things happened. He's able to talk to the people. And I love thinking, because when we think about the Gospel of Luke, probably the passages that jump out to us are the infancy narratives of Jesus. Luke probably went and tracked down Mary, Jesus' mom, and got firsthand what happened to her, how the angel came to her, how Jesus was born in Bethlehem, how he, when they visited the temple, these two old people came up and told these great predictions about what Jesus would do, right? Think about all that Mary had treasured up into her heart and that she was able to then share with Luke so that he could record them. Because he's recorded for some time past. He's talking about from the beginning of Jesus' life. He's recording even from the beginning of his life. But think about what else. This is powerful to think about what else would be missing if we didn't have the Gospel of Luke. This is why he would write. He wants us to know, if you've been in the men's Bible study recently, we spent a lot of time in Luke 7 where he talks about raising a woman from the dead and then Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman and the interaction that Jesus has with them. You wouldn't have that story if it weren't for Luke recording that. Or think about the parable of the Good Samaritan we already mentioned, or the parables of the lost coin and the prodigal son. Those are so important in the message that God has sent his son to seek and save the lost, right? We wouldn't even have, I, I just quoted from uh, Luke 19.10 there, that's the end of the story of Zacchaeus. We wouldn't know about the wee little man if it weren't for Luke. And at the end of that, Jesus says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And so Luke, when he hears this story, he says, I have to include this because this is going to be so encouraging for the Gentile readers that I have. They need to know that Jesus came to seek and to save them. So now 
we get to finally, in verse 4, to the purpose that Luke writes with. Look with me at verse 4. He says, we'll back up to verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty. That's why Luke writes. Theophilus has heard the gospel. He's probably heard maybe even Paul preach the gospel. He's received this instruction about Jesus, but he has doubts. And so Luke is writing to him to address those, to help him have certainty. You can imagine those doubts. Is Paul's in prison. He's going to die. Like, is this story really true? Does that happen to followers of Jesus? That could cause some doubts for Theophilus. Is that man that we've been told, Jesus of Nazareth, is he really the Savior of the world? Is, are the promises that he's going to return and he's going to set all things right, are those promises really true? Because it kind of seems like we're being persecuted quite heavily right now. Luke wants Theophilus to know the certainty of the things he's been taught. He wants to strengthen his faith and encourage him with this gospel. And he wants him, and I think it's pretty clear that since God preserved this gospel for us, he wants us to know as well, not just these facts, not just information about Jesus, but to be convinced that it is true, to not just know in our heads, but know in our hearts the certainty of the things that we've been taught, that these events really happened, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God, the promises of Scripture, that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah and Savior of the world, that Jesus really is the great physician who came to heal the sick, to set them at liberty, but not just from physical diseases, but from our spiritual diseases as well, from our sin, our pride, our self-righteousness. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save you. That's why Luke wants to record this, that we can have confidence that Jesus' Jesus' death really does pay for our sins because he really did rise from the dead. And that promise of his return and our future resurrection is certain. That God has been faithful to fulfill his promises in the past, and he's going to be faithful to fulfill the promises that remain. So Luke wrote to Theophilus, and he wrote to future generations so that we could be edified and encouraged when we're struggling with doubt. When it's hard to know what's really true, we can look back at this gospel. And that's my prayer for us as we study the gospel of Luke, that we will all know the certainty of the things that we've been taught. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture of your faithfulness to generations your faithfulness to us. We thank you for preserving this gospel to us. May we grow as we study it. May we know Jesus more and more through it and love him and follow him more faithfully. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.